sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about this uh, recent racist terror attack in Buffalo, New York. Also going to be touching on Finland and Sweden formally applying to be a part of NATO and just what that means. Also going to be marking Nakba Day and what it means for the ongoing Palestinian liberation struggle. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, watching the news unfold this weekend, I couldn't help but recall Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's teachings, the late Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. In fact, I thought actually about friend of the show, Baltimore Charles, and how he would often bring her up in his calls asking why white people hate us so much. Now, one might have disagreed with some aspects of Dr. Welsing's theories and comments. I certainly did not agree with everything she said, but her teaching on the theory of white genetic survival was one that always stuck with me when considering the illogical and unhinged acts of racist violence we see carried out more and more frequently. Welsing presented her theory in 1970 in her essay, The Cress Theory of Color, Confrontation and Racism, White Supremacy, a Psychogenetic Theory and World Outlook, which was published while she was an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Howard University College of Medicine. Welson posits that the origins of racism are rooted in the effects that varying degrees of melanin, the color producing pigment in skin, can have on racial perception and development. She writes in her paper, quote, the quality of whiteness is a genetic inadequacy or a relative deficiency or disease based upon the inability to produce the skin pigments of melanin, which are responsible for all skin color. The majority of the world's people are not so afflicted, suggesting that the state of color is the norm for human beings and its absence is abnormal, end quote. In layman's terms, Welson claimed that white supremacy and white supremacist behavior can be attributed to the minority of people on the planet who do not have melanin enriched skin being terrified of being rendered genetically insignificant, pretty much either by being wiped out or ruled by those who are people of color. So racism, according to Dr. Welsing, is a psychological defensive mechanism, and white people respond with repression, reaction formation, or projection. This, Dr. Welsing believed, is where the white genetic superiority, intellectual superiority, and cultural dominance emanates. This defense mechanism against genetic insignificance is where the need to repress the genetic majority in the world comes from, she believed, and the fear of genetic obsolescence is where the violence against their perceived enemies come from. Now, there have been plenty of opposition to the late Dr. Welsing's theory, and I'm not even sure at this point that it matters whether she was right or not. What I do know is that every time there's another racist hate crime in this country or anywhere else in the world, the neo-Nazis proudly espouse their adherence to replacement theory as a reason for their actions. And they did not get that from Dr. Welsing. 
The same is true of this latest racist massacre committed in Buffalo by the 18-year-old self-identified neo-Nazi. The murderer of 10 people in a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood last week was planning to kill more people had he not been arrested. Peyton Gendron left extensive writings in support of the racist massacres in New Christchurch, New Zealand, and in El Paso, Texas in 2019, and in support of the racist murderers of Ahmad Arbery, among other neo-Nazi writings and symbols, including the Sonnenrad, or Black Sun emblem that was adopted by the Nazis to create an Aryan Norse heritage and has been identified in several images on Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Gendron also left behind what he believed in writing. At one point in his 77-page manifesto, the Buffalo suspect asks himself, what do you want? He answered with a 14-word sentence that is common. It is a common slogan among neo-Nazi groups that argues for the preservation of the white race and its children. That sentence, known in far-right circles as the 14 words, which I will not, read was coined by David Lane, a member of the far-right group The Order. It embodies the central white supremacist tenet that white people will not survive unless immediate action is taken. I do not know if Dr. Welsing was right in her psychological genetic analysis of where white supremacist violence and thought comes from or why. What I do know is that we are not taking the actual racists seriously enough when they are very clear about why they are willing to kill us to get whatever it is they want. So I think the time for analyzing the why is over, and it has been for a very long time. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And, uh, of course, Jackie, this past weekend, uh, incredibly tragic uh, racist terror attack took place in uh, Buffalo, New York, at the hands of 18-year-old uh, Peyton Gendron, who, who opened fire in a supermarket in Buffalo. I believe it was on Saturday. And at least 10 people have uh, died as a result of this. And I believe there are a few more who are injured. And reportedly, this is already being labeled a a hate crime by the FBI and the police. And there's a couple of noteworthy things about this. I mean, number one, here we are in the United States, yet another mass shooting. And as soon as I read about this story, Jackie, I I immediately thought about this uh, rot in the United States that we talk about on the show quite a bit. And this is what I mean. And when I say rot, I mean like a real social decay, a breaking down of the the social fabric of this country precisely because of the machinations of white supremacy and capitalism. And I feel like I should also say, if people are, aren't aware, I mean, we are in a moment of a rising tide of a fascist violence here in the U.S. and I believe in other parts of the world as well. So don't 
don't don't be fooled that that is not what's happening. That is absolutely happening. And uh, that is part of this uh, whole shooting issue. I mean, this is someone who reportedly researched the area, researched the demographics and knew that this was a uh, black area. He drove 200 miles from his home uh, uh, to the site of the shooting, wearing a bulletproof vest, uh, camouflage fatigues, tactical helmet, all of this. And apparently he's also uh, like most of these people do uh, left a manifesto. I've been trying to track it down. I intend to read all of it. And I've seen some analysis that said it, it bears resemblance or seems to pull um, inspiration from uh, the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand. And according to reports, uh, Gendron had a, a, a racist blog where he published under the name Black Sun. And for those who are not uh, aware, Black Sun is a Nazi symbol. I encourage you to look it up. You, you may have seen it and not realized it. I think certainly in the time since uh, the Ukraine war, we've seen um, both the Black Sun and a number of other Nazi insignias. But and one thing that stuck out to me, Jackie, was the response of Joe Biden, of course, the president of the United States, where he responded to the shooting saying, quote, any act of domestic terrorism, including an act perpetrated in the name of a repugnant white nationalist ideology is antithetical to everything we stand for in America. So Joe Biden is saying that this racist white nationalist ideology is antithetical to everything we stand for in America. But this is the same Joe Biden that bragged about his relationship with racist segregationists like James Eastland, Herman Talmadge. I mean, this is the same cat he, who eulogized Strom Thurmond. And he talked right. about how, well, yeah, we disagreed, but, you know, we'd get lunch afterwards. So it's perfectly appropriate, I guess, to uh, uh, pal around and grab a bite to eat with uh, open racist. But when someone carries out a racist terror attack, somehow that has to be, you know, uh, 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 you know, there has to be some separation with that. And there's another level of irony to this, too, uh, uh, just like I was mentioning in terms of the black sun and uh, as a Nazi symbol and how we've seen a lot of this with uh, the Azov Battalion lately. I mean, there was a period where it seemed like, you know, every uh, almost every time you saw a picture or a video of uh, troops in Ukraine, there seemed to be some uh, a Nazi insignia there amongst them. And, and, you know, we've commented on the show before about this very weird way that that whole issue has been dealt with here in uh, uh, the U.S. And I won't rehash that, but suffice to say, it's basically a deflection play trying to downplay or undermine or whitewash the presence or impact of uh, uh, these people. And, you know, another thing that I think we should be looking at, because I noticed that there's a there's a hashtag that's been trending today called Fox News breeds terrorism. And I actually think that's an oversimplification because to be yeah. sure, uh, Fox News and, you know, a number of other prominent right wing media outlets that we can name, you know, One America News Network, you know, Alex Jones, all of these popular uh, right wing platforms. It's absolutely true that they contribute to this climate and uh, uh, to this culture. But what we're looking at is not simply the result of uh, people absorbing uh, racist 
uh, news analysis or reporting. I mean, I think it's 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 actually much deeper on a societal and cultural level that again emerges out of this uh, uh, capitalist uh, white supremacist system. And the other part of that irony for me is that. Also, while, you know, Joe Biden and the U.S. government and, you know, the American political mainstream is condemning this. I mean, they're giving billions and billions of dollars to people with the same ideology in Ukraine. And so it's just so wild to see. And I think it's interesting that. When it comes to these these mass shooters who are overwhelmingly white men, who are overwhelmingly reactionary in their uh, uh, political orientation, who tend to have a deep resentment and really uh, that might be putting it lightly. I think in truth, it's an outright hatred for women. You know, it's uh, just sort of part and parcel again of this rot, I think of the uh, sort of moment that we're in. And so to think that Fox News is is pushing this right wing ideology and say CNN isn't, you know, when they amplify these uh, same people, then I feel like that that's an aspect of it as well. But I mean, I could go on and on. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, Jackie. I just feel like there's so much that's there. But I'm just wondering how it's all striking you at this point. Yeah, I think all of those things are absolutely true. All of those things you pointed out, particularly the, you know, the 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 hashtag. Like we have been quite quite literally censored on this show and so many other of our uh leftist uh journalist colleagues have been silenced, platforms taken down off of social media outlets, uh literally fired, laid off from their jobs for pointing out the truth that the US, the EU and NATO are arming and have armed and legitimized and unleashed neo-Nazis, the same the people with the same ideology as this person in the U.S. who used that ideology to kill 10 people here in the United States. Well, the U.S. government has been arming and legitimizing the same kind of people and unleashed them on the ethnic Russian-speaking people in Donbass, Lugansk, and Crimea. They have the exact same ideology. We are going to eliminate these people who we do not consider like us for the survival of our people. It's the same ideology. So when we have in this country outlets like, as you point out, Sean, CNN and MSNBC and the so-called liberal uh, outlets that are completely ignoring, downplaying, uh, poo-pooing the existence and the legitimization and the arming to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars in weaponry neo-Nazis in Ukraine, how in the world are we supposed to take seriously these same people's hand-wringing over someone with the exact same ideology slaughtering 10 people here in the United States? I, I can't. I cannot take those people seriously because I understand that their outrage is selective and it's politically motivated because they will use their platform to silence folks like you and me in pointing out what this government is doing in league with the fascists, all the while they're they're claiming that, oh, we have to do something about this problem of fascism in the United States. But these are also the same people, Sean, who basically helped criminalize uh, the uprising in the streets against 
racist police fascism in this country over the past few years. So I think that we are seeing uh, the full realization of the hypocrisy of the U.S. in regard to this issue in particular, this issue of white supremacy. And we're seeing what the white supremacist settler colonial, uh, colonial project has come to in this country. And it it's not pretty, but that I, I, at this point, the only solution to these problems lies in the people in the streets because the elected officials and the media clearly have no answer for these problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, that is really the main takeaway because when we look at these ongoing mass shootings and how they continue to be sort of fueled by uh, reactionary sentiment. I mean, first of all, I see it as blowback. I see it as chickens, chickens coming home to roost with um, the, 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 the far right and white supremacists, the support that uh, the U.S. has had for these elements. Um, I think not only in the U.S., but also across Europe and the world for some time, both directly and indirectly. I think there's a number of ways that uh, we could point to how uh, U.S. imperialism and the policies of some of these different countries sort of uh, lead to the rise of these far right, um, you know, uh, uh, racist organizations, groups and ideologies. And so uh, on the one hand, I think it's sort of America uh, feeling that the smithereens of bombs that it's sort of set off elsewhere. But also I, I want people to be clear that we can't just look at this and, and brush it off or be numb to it and just kind of say, oh, well, that that's terrible. But thoughts and prayers, I mean, whatever. I mean, you know, uh, quote unquote, lone wolf crazy racist or what have you, even though we obviously can't always predict when incidents like this will happen. I think we should, though, be seriously thinking in our conversations, in our movements, in our organizations, in our communities about how to organize against uh, uh, fascist violence and this rising tide. Uh, we know for a fact that, you know, we don't have any help coming from uh, uh, this government or this political mainstream that likes to act all uh, aghast at things like this while, like I'm saying, you know, sort of actually promotes that kind of thinking in a number of ways, even if not overtly. And so when we talk about sort of beating back the riding tides of fascism, I think there's quite a bit of history that we can look to in terms of how we move forward against the current threat. But we're going to go ahead and move to a break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about Finland and Sweden formally asking to join NATO and just what that means. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. 
Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark. And uh, here recently, the governments of both Sweden and Finland have formally asked to uh, join NATO, of course, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And uh, interestingly, uh, the response from uh, Vladimir Putin, Russian president, uh, recently told a meeting of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. This is a group that includes Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, and Belarus, that he didn't have an issue with uh, Sweden or Finland. Um, but he did add that, quote, but the mili- the expansion of military infrastructure into this territory would certainly provoke our response. What that response will be, we will see what threats are created for us. Problems are being created for no reason at all. We shall react accordingly. Also, the Turkish government, of course, under Recep Erdogan, also sort of voiced some uh, a trepidation about the whole situation. And so, I mean, I really want to get into um, the nitty gritty of what's happening here, Mark. But just to begin, I mean, why is it that the governments of Finland and Sweden are uh, even interested in joining NATO? Okay, so uh, the governments of Finland and Sweden, they have been de facto NATO members for over a decade now. Um, The political elite in both countries very much want to be part of U.S.-led Western hegemony, as exemplified in the NATO military bloc. They want to be with the cool kids, right? Uh, It's not because of any real security concerns. Uh, Finland has had you know, peace uh, with the Soviet Union and with Russia uh, since the end of World War II because of their neutral status. But having a neutral status leaves them sitting at another table in the geopolitical lunchroom. Um, So for over a decade, both Finland and Sweden have been de facto pursuing NATO membership, right? They constantly are doing military exercises with NATO. They have all NATO standard equipment, most of it bought by European countries, uh, some from the United States. They're constantly been working on interoperability, making themselves useful to NATO, particularly in the area of the Baltic uh, for Sweden and the Arctic uh, for uh, Finland. Now, uh, another big area where they have already demonstrated how much they are all have already de facto been part is signals intelligence. And uh, the Snowden uh, leaks revealed uh, in part, you know, they revealed a lot. But one of the things they revealed that is that Swedish military intelligence regularly or uh, sorry, Finnish uh, military intelligence regularly uh, collects what they have uh, on Russia and transfers it to the United States. And the, the proximity, of course, is a, is a big issue there for, for collecting signals intelligence from Russia. Uh, so that already shows, you know, even a level of military intelligence uh, cooperation. Operation. That's why it's no real big surprise for Russia. This has long been in the works, and the biggest obstacle to it has actually been public opinion in both countries, which was against joining NATO uh, up until Russia's military intervention in Ukraine uh, in this year. And the hysteria brought on uh, through uh, the regular media, social media, governments, and the like, has radically shifted public position in both countries. Uh, in in Finland, there's quite a large majority now, whereas somewhere in the in the mid 70s uh, percentage uh, that wants to join NATO. In Sweden, it is a bit smaller. It's it's a bare majority, something like 52 percent. But uh, both countries had long had the understanding that if they were to do join NATO. 
they would do it together. So once the uh, Finnish government launched their bid, uh, Sweden has proved not far behind. Um, so, you know, the this is not an immediate game changer um, because, you know, they have had this de facto relationship. Russia has long considered that in the event of some type of conflict with NATO, that Finland and Sweden would be on, on the opposing side, that they would that they would dispose of the fig leaf of neutrality. Uh, Russia does not have a a border with Sweden, uh, but there is a small Swedish island, Gotland, in the Baltic Sea, close to Russia, that is, you know, kind of right in the path of um, Russian uh, movement, uh, naval and um, aviation uh, towards uh, Kaliningrad, Russia's exclave uh, in Europe, uh, you know, uh, up in, in, in the corner towards uh, Poland and Germany, that extraterritorial extension of Russia. Finland has a very long border with Russia, some 830 miles. It would certainly vastly increase the amount of direct border space between Russia and NATO, which is not good generally uh, for both sides, but it is also not the best terrain for launching a military inter intervention. It's basically subarctic swamp and the roads up there, I've been up there, it's pretty pretty atrocious. Uh, so it's, it's not exactly where a military uh, offensive is gonna be launched into Russia. That is why Russia does not see this as an immediate military threat. It's something that they have long factored in. It doesn't change a lot. However, if they start building air bases, if the U.S. starts building air bases or Finland starts building them specifically for the use by the U.S. and, and uh, to some extent the British Air Force, starts putting miss missile systems in there, starts putting powerful radar and other uh, signals intelligence gathering equipment uh, in Finland or in Gotland, that would then be perceived as as a a serious expansionist military direct threat to Russia and Russia would definitely start to militarize the border with Finland. Right now, that border is is not militarized to a very large extent. It has it is a very lightly protected border because there's been peace between the two countries since the end of World War Two, when Finland fought with Nazi Germany. Um, but if Russia starts to see serious military infrastructure developed there. Again, Russia is not afraid of the Finnish military. It's quite small, right? It's not afraid of the Swedish military. It is afraid of the U.S. and to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom using Finnish and Swedish territory to launch potential attacks on Russia. Uh, and and intelligence gathering, again, is, is always a concern as well. So that's why Putin has quite specifically, you know, said, you know, calm down. Uh, it's not an immediate threat. We certainly don't like Finland and Sweden joining a military organization that is overtly hostile to Russia. But um, we, uh, you know, will temper our response until we see, you know, a development of, of, of a, a type of infrastructure build indicating that it will be used as a platform by the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and if that happens, Russia will have to seriously militarize that border, right, both in terms of conventional forces and also in terms of strategic targeting. Finland and Sweden would not have been targeted by Russian uh, nuclear missile plans in event of a nuclear confrontation with the U.S. and NATO before. Now they will be.
Uh, so the end result is that both the Finnish and Swedish governments, uh, they will not increase their security anymore. They haven't had any security problems with Russia, uh, for, you know, uh, again, since the end of World War II. Uh, but uh, they they this will security wise destabilize the region. Both sides will have to spend more on their militaries. That is, their taxpayers will have to spend more to militarize borders that were previously unmilitarized against each other. And uh, it, the potential, once again, for escalation and confrontation with this new long border between NATO and Russia exists, right? It, it just has to be seen what is what will be done with it. Yeah. And, you know, Mark, Turkey's uh, president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has also cast doubt on the Finnish and Swedish uh, uh, applications for membership into NATO, saying that he doesn't have a positive opinion of the two Nordic nations joining the military alliance after the uh, Russian military uh, intervention or action in Ukraine. What more can you tell us about Turkey's position in this uh, current round of who's going to join NATO? Yeah, this is more Erdogan being Erdogan, right? Uh, He has been a a cunning beast of geopolitics, constantly playing NATO and Russia off of each other for his own country's advantage. And here he's not concerned about really about any greater, uh, you know, escalation or geopolitical confrontation. Erdogan wants something. Right. Uh, And he is highlighting the fact that um, Scandinavian countries, Finland and Sweden in particular, Norway as well, um, often, uh, you know, uh, grant migrant status uh, to uh, Kurdish uh, political groups, uh, in particular, the the uh, what he calls the he identifies them as the PKK, a Kurdish uh, rebellious uh, military group uh, that uh, Turkey considers a terrorist organization. It has to be said that the Scandinavian countries and Russia, for that matter, uh, you know, do not consider them a terrorist organization. And uh, Turkey has long had internal problems with its repression of its Kurdish uh, minority. Uh, and that has extended uh, into, uh, you know, a regular attacks uh, on Kurds in Syria and Iraq, uh, across border attacks. Uh, another thing that Erdogan specifically highlighted is export restrictions over certain items. Uh, I would imagine a lot of them are military, military dual-use items uh, from Scandinavia uh, towards Turkey. So he is is basically using this moment when there is such great push by NATO and by the Swedish and Finnish military, uh, political and military elites to kind of hustle Finland and Sweden uh, into NATO now while public opinion has shifted before there's any type of greater reflection about exactly what this means. He wants to use that as leverage for what, you know, what he sees as Turkey's own kind of shallow interests, uh, parochial interests in this regard. And he's likely to get something for it because uh, uh, NATO does require unanimous consent for new members to join. Um, and, uh, you know, Erdogan has pulled many of this type of things uh, over uh, issues between NATO and Russia previously and always comes off a little better uh, and chuckling uh, for the result of it. Yeah, and for me, I feel like this 
sort of helps expose kind of the reality of sort of the true nature and character of NATO, Mark, as an organization, which, you know, in the U.S. and the West, it's portrayed as this sort of grand uh, defensive institution that, you know, uh, uh, countries join willingly and all these sorts of things. And, and don't they have that right if they want to? But you know, in truth, it's always been sort of a weapon for uh, U.S. imperialist uh, expansion. And I think what has gotten lost, particularly in a time since uh, the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine, is just what the uh, encirclement and containment of Russia uh, uh, means for them as a country and really for geopolitics. And I feel like the Russian government was, I mean, pretty clear about a lot of these concerns, uh, I mean, for a long time, but definitely in the lead up uh, to this invasion. And I think a one of the consequences of the war, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, Mark, but I think I feel like one of the consequences is, you know, some of the major powers, certainly the U.S., its uh, junior partners and vassal states, I think whatever, you know, uh, contribution contradictions existed among them have, at least for the moment, been lessened because of the the broader issue of the war in Ukraine. And I think created the environment for this sort of shift in uh, public opinion about Russia, which was already, I think, you know, in the toilet in terms of the U.S. and the West. But I I, I can't help but feel like um, this is at least part and parcel kind of a consequence of the shift in public opinion that it appears some are taking advantage of. Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's that's exactly uh, what NATO is doing. And of course, the 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 broad public brand image of NATO as some type of grand defensive alliance of democracies is is complete nonsense. NATO has never Article five has never been invoked uh, to uh, by a NATO member uh, uh, for mutual defense against a, a attack by another state. Never. NATO, however, has been used to bomb, attack, invade, and dismember Serbia, carving Kosovo off of it. It has been used to bomb and regime change Libya, turning that country into a failed state terrorist uh, haven uh, and and, and, um, a uh, warlord-riven country. It has been used um, likewise uh, in Syria uh, uh, to back up the uh, U.S. uh, military occupation uh, there as well. Um, And uh, we have seen uh, uh, at least some of its member states have been involved in that. And NATO post the U.S. and British uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan was was brought in as kind of a a, uh, political fig leaf of um, uh, a type of uh, mutual uh, foreign policy, uh, a foreign policy of an international community of the willing. Uh, But of course, um, you know, it it is simply playing second fiddle to the U.S. And NATO has long become, most importantly, a, a geopolitical platform for the projection of U.S. military force in pursuit of global hegemony around the world. And when when Trump was very skeptical on NATO when he was president, Jen Stoltenberg, uh, NATO Secretary General, pointed out to him how useful NATO was for U.S. power projection into the Middle East. That's something he specifically highlighted, and that shows it. And in the last year before Russia's military intervention, Jen Stoltenberg was trying to shift NATO's fo- focus to 
the West Pacific against China. He says NATO needs a global NATO. NATO needs to work, start, uh, you know, um, uh, focusing on China again. Why? Because it is a platform for U.S. power projection uh, around the world. And I do have to wonder, Mark, as the U.S. Uh, continues to uh, use NATO for exactly what you just said, if let's say if. Um, you know, Finland and Sweden are uh, given uh, membership in NATO. What does that do you think that there will be a and a, a, the unintended consequence of even more opposition around the world to NATO by activating the members of the Finn and Swedish societies to now join the you know growing international uh, community of people who are opposed to NATO? I, I I'm thinking that that could be an unintended consequence, just like the continued horrible outcome of this proxy war in Ukraine has produced a lot of other unintended consequences. Well, Sweden has already been involved in several, uh, again, you know, providing a small token presence in, in several uh, U.S. military uh, occupations uh, and military uh, interventions. So um, there's 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 nothing new there. Uh, but uh, certainly I, I think what we see is the increasing block formation. Right. We you know, after, uh, you know, the 1990s, we saw the end of of the bipolar Cold War, the rise of the unipolar hegemonic uh, moment of the U.S., but as as relative global power started to shift east to China, uh, the Pacific, uh, and to the Gulf, uh, you know, uh, economics, uh, military following economics, um, and we saw some relative the U.S. decline compared to rising other countries. We we started, uh, you know, to see and, and I think hope for the birth of a more multipolar world order. And and what we're seeing right now play out before our eyes is that multipolar world order being stillborn. Uh, U.S. attempts uh, to again expand its influence, not only maintain. Uh, but extend its hegemony and to confront Russia and China and Iran and uh, Venezuela and other countries to contain them, as they say, to put them in a pressure cooker of hostile countries, right, by hook and by crook, um, that is uh, pushing the world back into a bipolar a global order situation where all of these countries that might not have had a lot in common before find themselves, uh, you know, having to uh, become strategic partners and ally with each other simply because of the strength of the uh, U.S.-led uh, Western hegemony NATO bloc on the other side. And we see that most clearly, of course, with Russia and China that have been pushed into uh, a de facto alliance at this part. But Iran is, is, is quickly going there as well, as well as several other countries and, and Finland and Sweden giving up neutrality uh, and, and uh, becoming part of the Western bloc is just another step down that path towards a bipolar world where countries have to make a choice. Which side are you on? Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the Nakba and other uh, developments in the world of the Palestinian liberation struggle. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Asa Winstonley, an investigative journalist and associate editor with the Electronic Intifada. And you can check out his work at asawinstonley.substack.com. Asa, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you again, Sean. Absolutely. And, you know, Asa, uh, here recently, Palestinians all over the world and uh, people who are uh, sympathetic and active in the Palestinian solidarity movement have recently marked uh, a Nakba Day, which is an important not only sort of historical observance for the Palestinian people, but I think a sort of important reminder about uh, some of the real context and substance of not only the Palestinian struggle of the past, but really how that very same fight and movement continues on to this day. And so I was hoping you could begin, Asa, by sort of explaining what is uh, uh, the Nakba and why is this day marked every year? Nakba is Arabic for catastrophe, and it marks the anniversary every year as a commemoration of really the destruction of Palestine in 1948, when Palestine was literally wiped off the map with the founding of Israel. So the May 15th, 1948, the day after the declaration of the State of Israel. And Palestinians commemorate this day because the foundation of Israel was only possible because of uh, a massive act of ethnic cleansing. And Palestinians were kicked off their land, they were kicked out of their houses, there was massacres, there were there are still mass graves being uncovered in historic Palestine until this day. And so the ethnic cleansing of some eight hundred thousand Palestinians from the land of Palestine is something that is marked every year in Palestine, in the West Bank, in Gaza, all over historic Palestine uh, as a, a commemoration. And it's it's not just a matter of history because the Nakba really never ended. The Nakba should be understood not only as a um, historic occurrence, but as an ongoing process that Palestinians are still being kicked off out of their homes uh, until this day. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And it seems to me, Asa, that the Israeli government is trying to complete the Nakba. And you know, you talked about the uh, expulsions, the um, uh, destruction of uh, entire communities. I mean, this kind of thing doesn't happen without uh, some type of footprint, some type of documentation, some type of evidence that it has happened. Where is the evidence that people can use uh, to go back and prove and say this is what was done? Because this seems to be an, always a part of the discussion of the Nakba every year. It's countering the misinformation and the lies and the complete cover up of 
uh, the Nakba that has been carried out by the uh, settler colonial Zionist project. What what do you say to people? Where can they go to get information to learn about you know the concrete history of what the Nakba is, how it started, and how it is continuing to unfold? Well, these days there's quite a lot of. Uh, resources that can be accessed, um, you know, as well as books, websites, and information. There's um, I, a website that I recommend it quite a lot is um, PalestineRemembered.com because it has it um, lists the information about the Nakba, sort of village by village and town by town, and it's it shows up there and that really that website is 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 excellent because it collates different academic sources um uh, the you know the books that are usually recommended are um ilan pape's book the ethnic cleansing of palestine it's a really good book um it, i mean it, it's it's uh, it's horrifying it's it's hard to sort of say it's a good book in the sense of it being a good read but it's it's a brilliant work of history um and then there you know he's of course ilan pape he's a dissident israeli historian who you know went into the archives the israeli archives and it's all there you know and um and he is someone who is an anti-zionist historian and of course there are historians like um benny morris who is who is a zionist and he's um quite frankly quite a, a racist anti-palestinian historian um, and he he justifies the nakba but he he in his books that he shows that it did take part Take, take place and that it was um, something which happened and that it was quite deliberate um, so but his the, his books do still have uh, quite a you know good historical basis to them um, Ilan Pape when it, like I mentioned he went into the Israeli archives but he also relies on Palestinian oral history and he and he thinks you know he, he emphasizes the importance of Palestinian oral history and the fact that we need to believe palestinians essentially that it's you know it's not we shouldn't have to wait until uh, things are revealed in the israeli archives because they're often just confirming what um, palestinians have been saying for a long time um, and there's also uh, palestinian historians like uh, nerma salha is an excellent palestinian historian who's got a classic book called expulsion of the palestinians so there's there's lots of resources that can be accessed and as i said these things are quite often accessible online at websites like uh, palestinerememember.com and in terms of the nakba being a historic process uh, an ongoing process you know it's uh, there i of course recommend the website that i work for electronicintifada.net yeah, definitely. And th there's some added context uh, for Nakba Day this year, Asa, as it, it also happens not long after uh, uh, Israeli forces shot and killed uh, Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, who worked for um, Al Jazeera. And uh, reportedly, this took place while she was covering uh, an Israeli raid on a refugee camp in the occupied West Bank here recently. And I mean, what's pretty wild 
wild. I mean, there have been videos that were showing that uh, these same Israeli occupation forces even attacked her funeral. And, and so uh, who who was uh, Shireen Abu Akleh, uh, uh, Asa? And, you know, uh, how do you sort of see this attack on journalists, uh, not just sort of Shireen? I feel like we've seen this um, over the years. Because when you discuss or describe the Nakba as an ongoing process, that's important because I think it can help people understand that Israel as an entity is an extermination project, right? That's why the displacement is so important. That's why this constant violence and Mm. killing is so important. And another aspect of that is... um, sort of skewing the narrative and not only putting out a a false idea of why Israel itself exists and the actual dynamic uh, with the Palestinians, it also has made a point to attack, you know, anyone who seeks to give uh, a realistic record of what's actually happening there. And so the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla then just seems to be part and parcel of the same historic process, Asa. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, Shireen Abu Akhla then was a Palestinian journalist who worked for the uh, Arabic satellite channel Al Jazeera, you know, this um, it, it, one of the Arab world's most popular channels, news channels, 24-hour news channels. And she was covering Palestine on the ground since the late 90s, since 1997, I believe. Um, And she was incredibly famous in the Arab world. She was somebody who was really a household name. Um, And, um, you know, she was someone who um, I've been reading people's accounts and people's remembrances of her. Um, And she was someone who really inspired um, journalists, especially a lot of young female journalists in Palestine who, 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 you know, young women in Palestine who wanted to become journalists. Um, and it's it's part and parcel of a long history of the Israelis killing Palestinian journalists because they don't want the truth to come out, essentially. We don't know exactly the circumstances of how they killed her. We don't know. I mean, Al Jazeera has described it as a deliberate killing. Um, you know, it, it, it's completely unambiguous. The Israelis killed her. You know, the Israelis have been claiming that um, it was, first of all, they claimed it was possible that the Israel, that um, a Palestinian fighter may have killed her by mistake. And then they later on, they sort of walked that back when it became clear that there was just so many eyewitnesses to the event. Um, that it's it's just simply not possible that that was the case. That it was it was unambiguous that it was the Israelis that did it. So we don't know at the moment whether it was a deliberate assassination or it was just the case of a whim of an individual Israeli soldier who decided to kill her in the moment just because, just because it was the 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 logic of settler colonialism. You know, as as you alluded to, that it's a it's. Zionism is an exterminationist project. It doesn't want the natives to live on the land. They wants to replace them with settlers. So um, it's just Israel's latest and most outrageous crime. You know, it's it's something that uh, is it's quite extraordinary. You know, that they would kill such a high-profile journalist. It will. Um, it will. And we've seen all these massive protests in Palestine about it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, not only was the uh, killing of uh, Abu Akleh so brazen and and just, uh, I I think that just the epitome of the uh, irrational, illogical hatred and violence of the Zionist settler colonial uh, uh, process, but the way the funeral procession was brutally attacked is also an example of the ongoing dehumanization of the Palestinian people. But I think it's important to note that not just Palestinians, because this procession included people of all different faiths uh, who do exist in Palestine, and they were brutally beaten as they were carrying Shireen's coffin to be buried. What has been the uh, response or has any response been made to the assault on uh, Shireen's funeral funeral procession? Um, and, And what is to be expected in the days to come as the United States, it seems, uh, once again, seems powerless to respond in any way to uh, Israel's continued brutality against Palestinian people. Well, there has been quite a lot of response in terms of uh, condemnations. You know, even the the U.S. government and European governments have condemned the killing, and they there's been you know condemnations of the attacks on the funeral procession as well. But, uh, you know, in terms of the Americans and the Europeans, these are sort of toothless condemnations. You know, for example, the in the UK, the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, um, kind of he played into this Israeli idea that we don't know. He, he condemned those responsible. So he didn't explicitly condemn the Israelis. So it was uh, quite a there, there has been responses, but at the same time, they are you know they, we've they're calling for investigations into the killing. So it's really playing into the Israeli narrative where they say they're going to have an investigation, and these they they always put forward this idea of an investigation but there's never any accountability because the investigations is just a way to really avoid accountability to kind of kick the can down the road uh until when there's not so much attention on the issue um and then dodging any kind of accountability so i mean I, when we saw these uh, funeral processions it was a reminder of the the unity and the liberation struggle in Palestine, because um, Shireen was uh, a Christian background. You know, there is um, there's a large Palestinian Christian population, Christian background, um, and um, so you know she was she was buried and had the funeral rites um, in an Orthodox church by the look of it, um, and you know we see all this kind of unity in the in the struggle that there was Palestinian Muslims and Christians all marching together and that it wasn't an issue of religion it was about freedom from from uh, military occupation oppression racism and colonialism and and you know it's a reminder of, of just how um, just how Zionism is a form of racism and sectarianism because they were Banning, trying to ban entry to Muslims 
to the uh, to the funeral procession when they were leaving from the hospital to take the cof- her coffin into 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 the funeral in in the church. So um, it is um, it's a you know we see the worst of it and the best of it really. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Asa, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, May 16th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to our shows on Sputnik.mave.digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, uh, unfortunately, uh, a shooting has taken place in Southern California. Uh, There's one person dead and I believe five people injured following uh, a shooting at uh, Geneva Presbyterian Church, which is located in Laguna Woods, California. And this is according to reports from the Orange County uh, uh, Sheriff's Department. And the suspect uh, has been detained and is reportedly an Asian man in his 60s. And uh, authorities recovered two handguns at the scene. And as of now, uh, a motive is not readily apparent. And of course, this happens just a couple of days after a tragic racist uh, terror attack there in Buffalo, New York. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Layla D. Brown, Assistant Professor of Cultural Anthropology and Africana Studies at Northeastern University. Dr. Brown, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And 
You know, uh, Dr. Brown, here soon, uh, the Joe Biden administration will be set to hold its uh, regional summit of the Americas. This is set to take place from June 6th uh, to June 10th in Los Angeles, California. And, you know, just like it sounds, uh, this is uh, basically a regional meeting, a hemispheric meeting and uh, things like this. But of course, uh, Washington has faced some criticism because of its uh, decision to exclude uh, countries like Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua from participating in this regional summit. And this has also had some ripple effects even through uh, the leadership of the different governments within the region. Uh, The president of Mexico, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, otherwise known as AMLO, uh, he's recently said that he would boycott the summit unless all the countries in the regions are invited. We've seen similar things from member states of the uh, Organization of Eastern Caribbean States and and CARICOM, including uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Antigua and Barbuda, who are also reportedly uh, uh, considering not going to the summit. Uh, Gaston Brown, who's the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda, said that his country, quote, does not believe in the policy of ostracizing Cuba and Venezuela. And, you know, on the one hand, Dr. Brown, this makes me think about how how much the U.S. government loves these uh, hypocritical conferences and summits and things like that. I remember, you know, just back, I think it was in December of last year, uh, the U.S. hosted this uh, so-called democracy summit, excluded China and uh, other countries like this. And one of the main planks, of course, was, you know, uh, uh, fighting a quote unquote authoritarianism and things like this. But, you know, some of the countries that were invited to that were, you know, like Brazil, Israel, Philippines, Colombia, you know, countries that uh, for a number of reasons are not necessarily renowned uh, for their strong uh, 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 dedication to democracy and human rights. But even be that as it may, doctor, I mean, it just feels pretty clear about how the U.S. is once again using these kinds of meetings to, you know, really, I think, hammer home the designs and plans and uh, desires of U.S. imperialism, if you will, and the fact that it's excluding these, you know, revolutionary countries who all uh, sort of uh, reject, you know, the, the, the operations of a U.S. world hegemony. I mean, it's, it's, it's hardly surprising, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I have to say it's it's kind of exciting um, to see the the pink tide, you know, um, coming in again in, in the Latin American context. Um, you know, the, the the summit for the Americas is supposed to be this opportunity for heads of state in the Western Hemisphere to come together and have these sort of common policy decisions. Um, but what is often sort of um, not, you know, necessarily clear to a number of American citizens is that, you know, there are all of these other regional configurations of of these countries, right? So in, I I think it was 2011, maybe 2012, um, Chavez announced the creation of ALBA, which is the Bolivarian Alliance of our Americas. And then I think the year following that, um, they sort of expanded that to the CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states. 
Um, and one of the things that's really interesting in, in what you see happening with CARICOM, refusing, with the CARICOM countries refusing to attend the summit for the Americas is that some of the Caribbean countries, I think, have been, particularly the, the Anglophone Caribbean countries, have, um, you know, in some instances been on the fence. Um, have not been as active as, you know, as a part of the sort of left swing in Latin American and Caribbean. But one of the, what did you call it, diplomacy arms of ALBA and CELAC was the, was Petrocariz, right, which is the sort of oil diplomacy program, which up until 2019 um, was still doing fairly well. And so there, it, it is, um, I think, exciting um, to see a kind of consolidation, even if it's not necessarily for all countries involved around a left move in Latin America and the Caribbean, there is, I think, um, promise in what it means to sort of reiterate the, the right to self-determination for these countries. Um, and in some instances, you know, I, I wonder about, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua's, you know, desire to even participate in these meetings. Um, and so I think there, you know, this, this is an interesting contradiction both ways because, um, you know, Venezuela has been struggling with the U.S. over the past, what, three years now um, to be recognized for the democracy that it is, um, which, as you already mentioned, Sean, is such a farce when we think about what democracy is in, in the context of the U.S. Um, and only really in the context of this Ukrainian war um, and battles over oil in Russia has the U.S., you know, relented um, on their position to acknowledge Maduro as the president. Um, and it's really sort of only for their opportunistic gains. So I think, you know, this is an interesting time and it will be interesting to see how all these things pan out. Yeah, you know, what you're saying, Dr. Brown, about, you know, CARICOM and their response, I've been kind of watching very, uh, with a lot of interest myself in the way they have responded in support of uh, basically boycotting this ridiculous summit of the Americas. And I thought it was particularly interesting that when when I was in Cuba, the closing ceremonies of the May Day festivities included, you know, uh, spoken, you know, delivered speeches from uh, various Cuban government officials, the foreign minister and the president, including. And they both said that they, you know, express solidarity. The Cuban government expressed the solidarity with all of these left uh, uh, focused movements, these people driven movements in all of these countries throughout the Americas as they uh, oppose U.S. imperialism uh, and the uh, uh, the right wing in their countries that's supported by U.S. imperialism. But I thought was it was that it was interesting that the president of Cuba, Miguel uh, uh, Diaz Canal, also said that Cuba supports the CARICOM demand for reparations, and in particular for Haiti. Those were the words he said, and I I do feel like that was an incredible shift in the, I think, the the recognition of the importance of the Caribbean nations uh, to this, you know, to the Americas. Um, but I think also it 
may may have been like a part of the reason that the Caribbean nations are so openly supportive of a boycott of the Summit of the Americas and are throwing their lot in with uh, this new pink tide because it looked to me like uh, Cuba basically laid the gauntlet down. <laughs> like, yes, we are in solidarity with these countries and CARICOM nations and Haiti too. And I think that was a signal to the U.S. Uh, that basically kind of sounded like, now what are y'all going to do? Because the Caribbean nations don't like you either. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Um, yeah, well, you know, so it's interesting because um, this is a position that Chavez long held. So I, the first time I went to Venezuela was in 2011, and it was actually for a regional a regional meeting of um, Latin American and Caribbean states, but it was an Afro-descendant meeting. And that particular meeting in 2012, I believe it was, I'm sorry, 2011, I believe it was the summer of 2011, was actually dedicated to Haiti. Um, and it has, you know, I, I believe, I can't remember exactly, but I believe uh, Chavez even has a speech about the debt that the Americas in general, um, but Latin America in particular, owes to Haiti. And um, one, and that's one of the reasons why when the earthquake occurred um, in 2010, I believe, um, that Venezuela was receptive to um, a mass influx of Haitian migrants following the, um, following the earthquake. But the reason why you know, they talk about this debt that's owed to Haiti. Um, obviously, we know the history of the Haitian Revolution, but in particular for the Latin American context, that area that was once known as Gran Colombia, which is um, uh, Panama, Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador, um, you know, was liberated by Simón Bolívar. And Simón Bolívar, you know, when they first initiated the independence wars, you know, he was losing and he was able to take refuge in Haiti. And so there's, and, and he takes refuge in Haiti, and he gets sent back to continue to fight the wars in Latin America with the support of, I believe it was Petion at the time, um, with Haitian troops, Haitian arms, um, and, having, and having, you know, lived in Haiti for a while and observed um, the changes that were occurring under the, under the revolution. Um, and w the only thing that was asked of him was to abolish slavery in the territories that he liberated. Um, and so there is this sort of long-standing, long, um, long understanding of the fact that, you know, not only is the Haitian Revolution a feat in and of itself, but were it not for the Haitian Revolution, the rest of Latin America, because Simon Bolivar is seen as this great liberator, the rest of Latin America would not have obtained its independence from Spain were it not for the battles already fought in Haiti and the support from Haiti and Haitian people for these struggles. And so there is both, I think, that sort of um, historic debt to be paid, um, and there is, you know, the continued understanding, you know, uh, in, the, in the Latin American context of needing to be able to create um, a block, a political block that, you know, that can push back against the United States. And I think, you know, being so close to the U.S., it's, it's you know, that's why Venezuela and Cuba have continued to be such a threat um, to U.S. notions of democracy, because they're too close, right? They're too close to home. And they're glaring examples of what's possible, you know, when you, when you have the vast majority of your people um, holding the government accountable in some kinds of ways. And again, that's not to say that they're, you know, Cuba and Venezuela are perfect, but when it comes to many, you know, 
basic measures of, of life and standards of quality of living, the vast majority of the population is better off than the vast majority of the population um, in the U.S., notwithstanding the sort of infrastructural differences. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I really appreciate you <clears throat> giving this history of uh, the role of Haiti in uh, different liberation struggles in Latin America. I mean, I, I don't think we can talk about uh, talk enough about that on the one hand, but also that fact, Dr. Sort of further highlights the hypocrisy of this summit. I mean, if you look at the State Department website, it has this page about the Summit of Americas. And under its sort of history section, it talks about how, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, when he was president, he convened the first uh, Summit of the Americas in December 1994 in Miami, Florida, which I think is 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 noteworthy and said that he did so to, quote, promote economic growth and prosperity throughout the Americas based on shared democratic values. Well, what democratic values were in play when y'all kidnapped Jean Bertrand Aristide or supported, you know, Jovenel Moise or any manner and number of a succession of different uh, uh, corrupt and brutal and kleptocratic leaders of that country, which Washington was more than happy to let slide as long as that leader was, you know, sufficiently obedient to the U.S. government and what it wanted to do. Uh, you know what I mean? But uh, to me, that uh, sort of raises a broader question question, uh, Dr. Brown, because I think that sometimes even people here in the U.S. who feel themselves to be progressive or radical or revolutionary, I think sometimes even those elements can be impacted by this attitude that the U.S. government has towards Latin America and the Caribbean, this Monroe Doctrine view of the region as uh, as the U.S.'s quote-unquote backyard. But even if you think, even if you don't think that consciously. Um, I, I think it's important to sort of highlight why is this region so important, um, geostrategically speaking, to the United States? And why does it employ so many resources to try to manipulate the politics of the region and to even carry out regime change in uh, uh, different countries and attack them for having their own processes, their own sorts of politics and definitions of democracy and things like this. And so, you know, this is a very broad question, Dr. Brown, but why is it that, you know, we should be paying attention to what's happening inside Latin America and the Caribbean as it pertains to global politics as we know it? You know, it's interesting um, that the, the Summit for the Americas was started in 1994, because if I'm not mistaken, that is the year that Hugo Chavez initially attempted his was the first coup attempt, I believe, that he attempted against um, then Venezuelan President Carlos Andres Perez, um, which came after that 1989 Caracaso, the the sort of mass revolts and rebellions of of black and indigenous and brown people in Venezuela after um, the sort of overnight implementation of structural adjustment programs that saw the sort of tripling or quadrupling of basic food staples like um, the you know bread, milk, the price of transportation. So it's interesting to think about, you know, prior to this moment, Venezuela was really seen very similarly to how Cuba was seen in the era of, of, um, of Batista, 
Um, it was very much the sort of playground of the U.S., of the U.S. wealthy. You know, they, they played nice. In fact, it was considered a sort of ideal democracy at the time. Um, and so just as the sort of tides are changing um, and this sort of, you know, and, and some people will say this, this sort of that pink tide is initiated in this wave, there is this moment where the U.S. decides, okay, we need to figure out how to consolidate some of these things. And I think to your question, I think one of the answers to that is very sort of basic um, geography. You know, the U.S. doesn't have any, um, what do you call it, any um, enemies that, that border the state, right? So they don't, so for the most part, the U.S. is able to maintain um, secure borders to a certain degree. Um, and, you know, Cuba and Venezuela and the sort of tide in Latin America. I mean, also because because of the Amazon forest and the Andes, um, you know, the Latin America is minimal rich, um, and that's what that's been one of the things. You know, one of the critiques of the Venezuelan government under Chavez has been, you know, about their sort of reliance on oil. Uh, Bolivia, I believe, has natural gas. Um, obviously, during the colonial era, those mines were they, they were mined for silver and and, and um, and gold and things like that. Um, but the, you know, the U.S. has been able to sort of secure um, its ability to control, you know, the movement of these goods. And I think that that's why it's, it's, you know, again, really interesting to see them have to backtrack in the context of the Ukrainian, Ukraine-Russia war on gas as it relates to, to Venezuela. Um, but again, I think that, you know, as we live in a sort of increasingly um, open world in terms of the movement and flow of ideas, a country that is so small, like a place like Cuba, um, and has been without resources for so long and has figured out, in spite of the sort of giant that, that the U.S. is, how to maintain itself, is just a constant, I think, global reminder that if, as powerful as the U.S. is, there is there is an ability to fight back against them in some type of way, shape, fashion, or form. And, um, you know, they're attempting to maintain their borders by continuing to, to, excuse me, to control the rest of Latin America. So I think, you know, there's the sort of basic geographic answer to that question. And then also the sort of political ideological question about what it means to question U.S. or Western notions of democracy by the examples of places like Bolivia and Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Layla Brown. And uh, Dr. Brown, in a few days here, we'll be marking 
another African Liberation Day, uh, something that I believe was actually founded uh, back in 1958 by none other than Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. as as Kwame Ture would say, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, you know, and that accent again. But uh, yeah, and this is something that has uh, has had deep resonance, I think, with African people both here in the U.S. on the continent, and I think in diaspora. I mean, I feel like it really um, sort of emerges out of uh, that kind of overtly political pan Africanism. And we all, and I want to sort of tie this together with a couple of other things that are happening. I mean, earlier in the show, we were talking about, uh, uh, Nakba day and this remembrance of, uh, this, not only an event of displacement and brutality, but something that is part and parcel of the process of, uh, the genocidal program of, uh, the state of Israel, as we know it, and of Zionism as an ideology. And, you know, because thinking about all that, I mean, it makes me think about this recent uh, racist terror attack in uh, Buffalo, New York. And sort of the common thread for me, doctor, is sort of this, what to me is an obvious need for us to really organize to try to beat back the rising tide of a fascist violence here in the United States. And I feel like every time this happens, particularly when it's, you know, um, uh, you know, like a, a white person or a white guy, as it typically is, who had these reactionary uh, uh, right wing beliefs. People say things like, oh, well, you know, uh, black people, we have to get armed and get trained and things like that. And of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the press people uh, defending themselves by any means necessary. But I feel like we really have to think about this from a, a collective sort of standpoint, because just, you know, a bunch of individuals getting guns in and of itself is not going to actually do anything, I think, uh, all that impactful to stop sort of an entire uh, organized uh, uh, movement that we see happening and one that continues to have support, I should say, because when Donald Trump was in office, you know, these reactionary elements were fundamentally and basically like his muscle on the streets. And so we, we, we continue to see them sort of act in this emboldened way. And I tend to think we'll continue to see violence uh, uh, regardless of whether Republicans return to office or not. But what I'm really sort of asking here, doctor, is how do you see these commemorations and days like uh, Nakba Day and African Liberation Day? What do these days have to tell us, you think, about how we should be organizing or orienting ourselves to our current moment? I mean, I know that's another uh, uh, big question, but there's such a deep history, you know, with things like African Liberation Day that, I mean, you're, you're more than welcome to get into that I think has quite a bit to say to us today in the 21st century. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. Um so I have not, I have not read the what was it the 180 page um, I don't know manifest, yeah manifest. whatever um, that the guy in Buffalo wrote but obviously his his primary preoccupation is with this sort of um, with the declining um, numerical significance of white people in the U S right. Um, and it's interesting that so much of that is targeted towards black people when we are you know statistically a uh, relatively small portion of the population in the U.S., 13 to 14 percent. Um, 
Not that I am suggesting that that violence should be directed anywhere, um, but it is interesting that so much of sort of reactionary white nationalist ideology is so much about fear of, rep- of reprisal. It's so much about this fear that what they have put out into the world in the form of colonialism, imperialism, slavery, Jim Crow, apartheid is going to come back to them, right? And so I think that, um, you know, you're absolutely right that this sort of individual um, arming of ourselves is not going to do much in the way of protecting ourselves. And so I do think that there is um, much to be sort of understood and, and talked about through these sort of commemorative events. Um, you know, I'm a member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. We actually had a Nakba Day commemoration yesterday, and we always celebrate, um, well, we not always, but we have for uh, quite a number of years now, celebrated African Liberation Day in commemoration with Palestine Day um, because we fundamentally understand that the apartheid state of uh, of Israel that Palestinians are living under is fundamentally connected to our own sort of um, global oppression as African people. Um, But I think, you know, beyond that, so the the, the 19th, you were right that in 1958, Kwame Nkrumah called for what was then uh, celebrated as Africa Freedom Day. Um, And because Ghana was one of the first sub-Saharan African countries to gain its independence. Um, And obviously, you know, Kwame Nkrumah spent, he went to school in the U.S. He spent 10 years in the U.S. um, at an HBCU, Lincoln University, um, before he went back to Ghana. And obviously, even in within his own cabinet, um, you know, W.B. Du Bois and Shirley Graham Du Bois um, were very influential in in political positions. I believe Shirley Graham Du Bois was running the communications or television station. Um, but you know, Nkrumah was very um, clear, and he's you know he's one of the greatest I think um, theoreticians that we have of, of African liberation struggles. Um, and so, in addition to the commemoration of African Liberation Day, which at that time was not even really understood as a commemoration because many countries had yet to be liberated at that point, it was actually understood as a sort of um, a rallying point to think about what work there is that continues to that still needs to be done, is yet to be done. And I think that that is also how we should think about these commemorative days. I think it is important to understand the history always. I will never argue that that is, that is not important. Um, but we also have to dedicate our attentions to what does understanding those histories do for for helping us to chart a path forward. Um, and one of those other things that he called for was was the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and that was meant to be a mass political party um, that people could join uh, on the continent of Africa and and in the diaspora to have some sort of common political ideological base for understanding our you know our circumstances, our conditions um, in this sort of moment. Um, and I think that that's it, it's been I think really heartening the number of African Liberation Days. I mean, I grew up going to ALDs in D.C. um, when they were huge. (laughs) Um, They are no longer like that anymore. But to see the number of African Liberation Days um, around the U.S., around Europe, 
around the continent, in the Caribbean, I think is really heartening. And I think because of, you know, the Internet and social media, we're able to make connections in other kinds of ways um, in real time that we haven't been able to um, in the past. And I think that, you know, African Liberation Day, Nakba Day, which, again, I think Nakba Day, similar to African Liberation Day, as you explained earlier, is not just about marking the day when nearly two point nearly two million Palestinians were displaced from their homes and, um, you know, 78% of the land was taken from Palestinians, um, but, is a, but is a sort of renewal of the importance of the struggle to continue to fight against the apartheid state in Palestine. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think that all of these things are, are really interesting to, to see the growing preoccupation on the right among whites with the fear of reprisal. And I think the continued, I think, steady growth of our interest as black, as African people in understanding our, the connected nature of our freedom struggles around the world. Yeah, but Dr. Brown, doesn't this uh, acknowledgement or honoring of other people's struggles, doesn't that take our attention away from the struggles of African people? I mean, why should Africans, wherever we find ourselves on this earth, why should we be concerned with what's happening with uh, the Palestinians or uh, you know, uh, with Puerto Rico or with 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 any of uh, these other uh, national and international struggles that we can can point to. And of course, I'm being sarcastic, but this is a real uh, sort of narrative and thing that we, you know, run into, I think, in the real world. It's this idea that actually like to to be an anti-imperialist, to have this international scope of things actually uh, is a detriment to the black liberation struggle, because according to this reasoning, you're so focused on everybody else to the detriment of black people. And there's this persistent idea that when black people, uh, you know, join in other people's struggles that we somehow lose something or get lost in the shuffle. Now I, for one, don't think that's true. I, I think that history actually quite contradicts that. I think that, you know, one can only maybe come to that conclusion from a misunderstanding of struggle itself. But I mean, just to, you know, bring it back home, like why should African people be, uh, uh, concerned about these other struggles that are happening with uh, different peoples around the world, and, and why is it relevant to our own struggle? I mean, I think the the basic short answer to that question is all oppression is connected. Um, but I think the longer, um, more detailed answer to that question is that, on the one hand, I, I think that you know. I, I understand where some people come from when they, you know, say that our struggles as African people always get sort of relegated to sort of backseat positions, particularly when we work in coalition with other people. And I think that, you know, there is a, there is a danger in, in coalitions, um, especially when people enter into coalitions not on equal footing, right, um, and who determines the sort of agenda of coalitions. Um, but I also think, you know, like for us in the AAPRBGC, there we have a position that Africa is primary, right? And so for us, the primacy of Africa is both about the continent of Africa, but it's also about African peoples. Um, but we also understand the ways that um, these other sort of forms of imperialism, colonialism, 
uh, settler colonialism and apartheid are continuing to take place. And so I think the basic, one of the basic answers to that question is to, to say that um, why should we as Black people care about Puerto Rico or Palestine? One, the, the, the most faulty assumption in that question is that Black people are not Puerto Rican or Palestinian. Right. Are Afro-Palestinian and, and Afro-Puerto Ricans, right? Um, and so, you know, I'm, I am not going to get into uh, a long thing about uh, what are, what are, what are our, our, our people in the U.S. who like to call themselves Ah, the Carnells and oh yeah 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 we oh the ADOS yeah. <laughs> but you know here here on by any means necessary we 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 turn it around the SODA the solidarity of dispersed Africans shout out to Black Power Media for that oh my there it is <laughs> um, um, so I don't want to get into a debate over that um, and I think even that is just it's, it's, it's just historically inaccurate and, and wrong um, when we think about the fact that um, of the, you know, depending on who you ask, of the 11 million um, enslaved and displaced Africans that came to the Americas, only a single digit percentage came to the U.S. And more than 60 percent went to Brazil alone um, and 30 something percent went to the Caribbean. And so when we think about what it means to be the descendants of enslaved Africans in the Americas and not to mention the trans-Saharan slave trade or even the East African slave trade um, and all, all these other kinds of groups, I think that the basic policy assumption is that black people are not everywhere and we are everywhere. Um, but even beyond that, I think in the U.S. context, we saw some of the basic um, ways that, in, you know, when Ferguson was happening, when, we, when people began to understand the connection between the funding um, for military tanks and troops that were occupying Ferguson that were connected to the same military outfits that were occupying uh, Palestine and the ways that U.S. police are trained by Israeli forces, uh, the ways that the NYPD is an international terrorist organization, the, the New York City Police Department is an international organization with jurisdiction in many places around the world, not just the city of New York, right? Um, and so when we think about the reach and the expansive nature of the ways um, these Western nations, um, and particularly, you know, these white Western nations are able, able to dominate, it is to our benefit to weaken that struggle wherever we can. And I think, again, I've said it three times already, another example of that is is the Ukraine war, right? As So the, the pink tide in Latin America was chief um on Trump's agenda, right, to push to push that tie back. But when but when the when our enemy's attention is diverted elsewhere, we benefit from that. That's the same shit that happened in World War Two. When the whites fight among themselves, we have an opening, right? We have an we have an ability to um, realize our own sort of freedom and liberation because some of their attention is not on us. And so we have to be able to know and understand the continuous ongoing nature of these struggles in order to be able to strategically take advantage of those things as they occur and to be able to support one another. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Layla D. Brown is here. Jackie Lukeman, take it away. You know what, Dr.? I have been wondering about a couple of things in connection with each other, because I think we're in this really interesting time where a bunch of forces are all converging together to struggle for this new world that it's that some folks have been fighting for. And by some folks, I don't mean us. I mean the right wing in not just this country, but also around the world. And I, I feel like the struggle for reproductive justice is a part of this right-wing battle. I mean, I think people understand it in 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 that in that way, in in an obvious like understanding that it's been the right wing in this country, particularly the so-called uh, religious right, the people I call the Christo Christo fascists, who have been pushing to end abortion under this idea that, you know, they're saving babies, although the very same people don't want to actually feed babies when they are here. They don't want them housed. They don't want them educated. Yeah, all of that, all of that hypocrisy. But I do think that the way we talk about reproductive justice kind of obscures or or limits our understanding of what the right wing really is. It's not just like a GOP, you know, uh, a Christian a Christian evangelical right type of thing. There are elements in the so-called Democratic Party who are just as um, uh, um, un, unwelcome to, well, well, let me just say, they will not fight for women to maintain bodily autonomy. They they just will not. So to me, that also makes them enemies of women's reproductive justice. But I do wonder if, Dr. Brown, we are not having this conversation about reproductive justice in a way that exposes how the fight to destroy reproductive justice for all women, particularly poor working class women of color, is a part of a larger fascist movement in this country and around the world. And I'm wondering what you think about how we are having this conversation uh, in this moment of we're about to see the Supreme Court probably overturn Roe versus Wade, but we're just talking about abortion and not reproductive justice in general and not how it impacts particularly working women and women of color specifically. I I am so confused as to how to get people to see that this is a a result of fascism and not just, you know, one particular party with a bunch of religious crazies in it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the essential traps of the sort of um, farcical electoral machine um, in the U.S., right? Because... I'm not correct. I believe Obama um, even ran on so-called abortion rights. Um, And there has been zero attempt at really codifying laws that protect women's ability 
to choose what to do with their bodies. Um, and, and I think that that is particularly for the sole purpose of continuing to have it as a bargaining chip, right? Um, because I think there's no reason, there, there's no logical reason um, why more comprehensive um, laws have not been codified across the United States. Um, to to have a discussion about what it means to p- talk about reproductive rights. Um, it's also interesting, um, and this is kind of, it, it's related, but it's tangential. Um, I think that there has been, I was looking at just some, some basic statistics, and I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but there has been a decline in um, sort of adopt, adoptable children and one of the reasons why there's been a decline in adoptable children is because of these programs that used to force poor working class mothers to have their children um, and then give them up for adoption, um, you know, have, have declined, right? More and more women are either choosing to keep their child for themselves or, you know, have the ability to have an abortion. And so there there are some interesting, I think, sinister connections between um what it means to even just, you know, satisfy, I think, the kind of bourgeois proclivities of of middle-class America, Um, you know, as there is this sort of preoccupation with uh, declining fertility rates among among white women. And I think, and it's not exclusive to white women, Um, but there are these conversations, I think, about um, historically us as poor black brown immigrant working people you know we because whether it's because of sort of religious ideology or indoctrination or because of our inability to um pay for safe procedures have been forced into having children um which then sort of create or reproduce this this never-ending cycle whereby you know we have less and less resources to be able to provide for our family um and that and then that inhibits our sort of own ability to move or achieve certain things, right? Um, and so, as you know, there there are these. I think to only talk about abortion, right? And even and even in the context of Roe versus Wade, the the conversation about abortion is a is fundamentally because I was reading the leaked um, document, and it's fundamentally they're turning they're thinking of turning it over based on this argument about like vitality, right? Um, the vitality of a fetus or the, these conversations about when life begins. But these questions about when life begins are so, um, are so, I don't even know what the right word is, because if life begins at 15 weeks or 16 weeks, um, I believe I saw a meme or something like, does that, is that the point at which we begin to be able to put an insurance policy on a child and if the, and if the fetus dies, do we get to collect insurance on that fetus? Um, you know, what are all of these other ways that if we understand what life is, if life begins in that moment and is somehow separate from the life of the mother, how are we accounting for that legally, right? Um, and again, that was just a, a, a point to point out the hypocrisy, but the this I think this sort of debate around... Um, Abortion rights, when we know that black maternal health, um, black women are the most likely to die um, as a result of childbirth um, in this country, um, are the least likely to receive um, interventions 
you know, for pain, are the least likely to be believed, um, sort of basic things. We are having, we are not having, Jackie, I think you're very right, we're not having the comprehensive conversation that we need to have about what it means to live as healthy, productive people, let alone women, um, because so much of this debate is still a sort of ideological debate over the control of women. Um, and then in particular, over the control of women who are seen as irresponsible or loose or promiscuous or whatever that is, right? There are all these sort of morally deterministic arguments that are being made. Um, and there are not larger um, condemnations made of these systems and structures that are that are not in place for affordable child care, um, for, you know, reasonable housing and employment and health care and all these other things. It is, it is a very sort of um, reduced conversation that is not really getting at the crux of the issue. Definitely. And I mean, <clears throat> what you're noting about uh, black women's birthing issues, I mean, that certainly uh, uh, is the case here in D.C. I mean, there was a, an article that came out recently that said that uh, black mothers make up 90 percent of birth related deaths in Washington, D.C., 90 percent, even though in recent years, half of all births in uh, the city were, in fact, uh, uh, black women. And so, you know, and also when you get into how there's like a complete lack of, of access and resources to some of these very basic medical um, things in black communities, I think is another uh, uh, aspect. I mean, they quote one Dr. Christina Morea, who said, quote, things that we know about maternal mortality and women who are at increased chance of dying from a pregnancy related cause is that being structurally and socially disadvantaged and marginalized is a huge contributor to risk. That's class that she's talking about. Right. So we're talking about race, class, gender. These things continue to pop up. And I just wanted to uh, reiterate that, you know, you were correct talking about uh, Obama. You know, I mean, back in 2007, when he was still a candidate. He gave a speech to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, and he said, quote, the first thing I do as president is sign the uh, Freedom of Choice Act. Now, you fast forward to uh, 10 th- to 2008, when he's now successfully in the White House, he gave a news conference that was marking his first days in office. And when he was asked about the Freedom of Choice Act, he said, quote, now the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. I believe that women should have the right to choose. But I think that the most important thing we can do to tamp down some of the anger surrounding the issue is to focus on those areas that we can agree on. And that's where I'm going to focus. Well, that I mean, that last part is just a bunch of nothing. No, the the the, the best thing that you could do, particularly when you're the president and, and have the uh, majority in Congress, is to just codify the thing into law. But they refuse to do that. And of course, who was his vice president? None other than Joe Biden. I mean, back in 2006, he gave a, a videotaped interview with Texas Monthly where he said, quote, I do not view abortion as a choice and a right. I think it's always a tragedy. I think it should be rare and safe. I think we should be focusing on how to limit the number of abortions. Now, you fast forward 13 years and on Twitter.com, Joe Biden says that he, uh, as president, would codify Roe into law. You fast forward, he becomes president. 
uh, this issue happens, this draft leak of the Supreme Court the decision or at least uh, potential of overturning Roe versus Wade and all him and Kamala Harris can do is put out some mealy mouth statement. And so it's just a really ridiculous thing all around. But we got a caller on the line. I want to squeeze in here before we get out of here today. Uh, we have Alex on the line. Tell us what's on your mind, Alex. Yeah, uh, yeah, Sean, so you went in the perfect direction that I was kind of already going to ask about. But do you feel that, okay, I see two strategies with the right wing, which is one is kind of corral the conversation like you're saying into an issue of rights where you can have all these discussions about what people deserve when really it's just a question of access to health. And I'm, and I'm just wondering if you see a corollary to that and the way that the pandemic played out and we can kind of understand that it's not just the Republicans, but also the Democrats who like to have these kind of conversations because they're up in the air and they don't really encourage people to think about actual real material results or changes and things in people's lives. But also, I guess, the other part of my question would be, do the Republicans have this strategy and the right wing has this strategy of attack, attack, attack to keep people on the defensive to where we're never really, you know, asking for more than what we're trying not to lose? At a time? It feels like a perfect bind that the Democrats kind of allow to happen and don't ever push on it either. And kind of that's the game they play. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate the question and you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Dr. Brown, your thoughts. I mean, I think I think that's spot on. You know, when it comes to when it has come to both, I think COVID and um, abortion rights, we know that the, these debates primarily affect poor people um, who are reliant on public measures to take care of these things. Because even even at moments when um, abortion was more um, illegal than it was legal. People with solid health care plans or with the means and ability could always travel to wherever they needed to do and or see private doctors that would perform these procedures in the safety and privacy um, of their own facilities. And I think that, you know, that's largely true of what happened with COVID. I think, you know, once the sort of initial wave where we you know, we had an understanding of what COVID was, Obviously, we began to see again that the clear divide is a class divide, and that and that that class divide is always racialized um, in the United States and in the world. Um, and I also think to the last point, absolutely. I mean, I, and that's the point that I think I was making about how we do electoral politics in the U.S. Um, is that you know. It, it, there's just, there's just this pressure release valve, right? And there's just always. We're, we're given just enough to feel like we can take a deep breath, um, but, we, but we're never getting anything. And, and the little bit that we have is constantly being walled back. And, the, and so then the fight is always, I mean, what was the primary rhetoric around the um, election um, in this last election? It was anything but Trump. There was there's there's no political agenda. There's no explicit political agenda in a in a rallying cry that's anything but Trump. But that is what everybody was saying, right? That anything is better than Trump. And that's and we've seen that that is absolutely not true, because the same way that Biden and Obama did not, you know, make good on their promises about abortion, they he keeps walking back his promises about student loan debt, right? And I mean, so these. You know, we're we're getting nothing out of this, and and I've always really been of the mindset that we just really need to abstain because we keep um, validating these processes that are not doing anything for us. Yeah, definitely, Jackie Lugman, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I'm just actually sitting here listening to Dr. Brown say the very words that Mr. Lukman would say all the time, how the Democratic Party will always do something that would, you know, throw a little piece of something at people to release a little bit of pressure, just a little bit of pressure out of the pressure cooker to keep people from completely turning this piece upside down, but never enough to completely change this system and the power dynamic between those in power, including the Democratic Party, and the people who continue to vote for them. So, I mean, I, I, I think that we are seeing, once again, I think if COVID, this pandemic did not convince people that capitalism truly is a death trap. This country truly is a failed state. How we are seeing the Democratic Party respond to all of these converging crises that uh, Uncle Joe Biden swore he would do so much better than Donald Trump to address, but he's done not only exactly what Donald Trump was doing, in some cases he's done worse. Is is that a, a, a an endorsement of Donald Trump? No, that's an indictment of the Democratic Party and of this two-party system that they keep telling us to keep supporting. Yeah, definitely. And there's just something that I want to make clear to, to everyone hearing this. I mean, that cycle, that process that we always go through with electoralism in the U.S., where the Democrats try to basically scare us into voting for them instead of actually you know, giving us things that we need, that's always going to happen. But that's going to be... It's going to be particularly bad, I think, uh, this coming um, for these coming uh, midterm elections and also in 2024, not only because of like the people involved, but because of the broader conditions. But, you know, we have to understand that, uh, you know, that uh, that the, the kind of change that we know that we're trying to uh, bring about here, no matter how bad things get, is not going to happen all on its own. You all, we have to be proactive in building the movement, building our organization, strengthening and deepening our ties in these communities who are poised to be the most affected by all of this. Because if we don't, people will be left with that same old frustration and not really knowing what to do and doing the same old thing when we could uh, blaze a new way with a new organization, new society. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Layla Brown, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.